0: and to him are all things, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. Before we begin our study this morning, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for this time that we have to focus upon your word. You have revealed yourself to us down through the centuries. You have in your sovereignty, in your providence, overridden our, our the human condition of the writers of Scripture so that without violating their individual volition or personalities or backgrounds, you've guaranteed that that which they wrote would be free from error and would uh, would inform us and reveal to us the eternal truths that you would have us to know. Father, the purpose for your word is to transform our thinking, to challenge us in the areas where we have wrong beliefs and wrong ideas, to replace those with new ideas and new thoughts, to give us strength in the midst of difficulties and challenges, challenges, and to help us understand life in terms of our calling as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would challenge us with what we teach this morning, what we learn. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 6. This morning we're going to talk about one of my favorite passages and one of my least favorite topics, something that hits almost every one of us at some point or another in our life, and that is the area of worry. Basically what the Lord is saying is it's a waste of time, but more than that, it is a subtle form of idolatry, that every time we cave into worry and anxiety, we're basically saying, God, you're not in control, I am. That's a subtle way of saying, I'm really God. That is idolatry according to Scripture, and we need to think of it that way. Now, a lot of these situations we have in life, when we're faced with certain kinds of sins, we need to paint them in the harshest light we can. What our sin nature wants us to do is rationalize it into the most acceptable light that it can so that we think that it's not such a uh, major issue after all. But Jesus talks about worry in this particular passage. It's one of the foundational passages in Scripture on this whole area of worry as a sin. Let me just talk about it a little bit in terms of its structure. We read it a few minutes ago. This is a simple passage. One reason it's a favorite for many people is it's not doctrinally complex there aren't any real difficulties to it. It's extremely straightforward. It's filled with easy-to-grasp illustrations that uh, there aren't any real difficult problems in terms of interpretation. There aren't any words that are particularly challenging. There aren't any textual problems that are particularly uh, mind-bending. It's just a simple, straightforward uh, lesson in telling us not to worry. Peter summarizes it very well in a short, simple verse in 1 Peter 5, 7. Cast all your care upon him because he cares for you. That's this message in a nutshell. Jesus, who's Jesus talking to? Let's just work our way through the basics of the passage a little bit. To whom is Jesus speaking? He's speaking to his disciples. He's not speaking, I think, in in, in the context directly to all believers although there's application and implication to all of us from what he is saying. Now one of the reasons I say that is because uh, as I've studied through this and you think about the mission of the disciples at least initially, he will send them out to proclaim the kingdom of God. That's the initial part of their ministry, their message so repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. He will send them to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. They're not at first going to the Gentiles. He tells them initially, don't take anything with you. Uh, rely upon God to provide for your needs. I think it's important to understand that because later on, when he sends them out again, he will have them take things with them. What he says initially in that first mission to, uh, to the Jews is related con- contextually and at that time to that particular mission. One of the problems we have in interpretation is if we take passages out of context, we try to see universal principles in every situation. And there are, but sometimes we think that uh, some things are universal principles and they're not. Uh, as Jesus talks about worry... In this passage, and anxiety, and God providing for you, I think it must be understood in the in the context of the fact that He's talking to His disciples, and this will provide a background for that particular uh, mission and that particular ministry. I think we can go, and some Christians in the history of Christianity have gone too far. In taking this as a passage where we should uh, should eschew or reject possession too many possessions, ownership of too much property, building successful businesses that produce a vast amount of income, there is a certain sort of monastic ascetic uh, mentality that can enter into the interpretation of this passage. That does not. Uh, does not fit with other passages in scripture. Money in and of itself, wealth and numerous possessions are not a problem. In fact, the Lord has used those who have many possessions and much wealth to support missionaries and to support great endeavors for the gospel and for the teaching of God's word. So it's not that that is the possession of great wealth or the focus on accumulating great wealth that is a problem. It is how you put that into perspective in terms of the priorities of your life. There are some people who think they can make great wealth, but it destroys them spiritually. There are others who have the ability to focus on those material things and those material pursuits and success, and it is an enhancement to their spiritual life because they're not really focused on money. It's not about the money. It's about Enjoying the game, enjoying the opportunity to be successful, and then utilizing that for the purpose of of spiritual uh, s- spiritual pursuits. And so, we have to have that balance there. That's why I'm bringing us back to an understanding that that this lies behind part of what Jesus is going to tell uh, tell his disciples to do. In the previous section that I looked at last time. We looked upon the fact that Jesus is focusing us on the priorities in relation to possessions. We're to be grace-oriented. All of this is part of What we talk about when we talk about grace orientation, grace orientation isn't simply related to the one aspect of understanding God's grace in salvation or understanding God's grace in in supplying our every need in sanctification. It goes beyond that. Part of grace orientation is foundationally the attitude of humility. You cannot be grace-oriented and humble at the same time for arrogance drives out humility and drives drives out grace, uh, grace dependence. So humility is part of grace orientation. Dependence upon God for his uh, sustaining grace uh, day to day, no matter what the circumstances or situation might be, is also part of grace orientation. And that is the opposite of worry and anxiety. And so this is definitely part of the component of what makes, makes up grace orientation. For the person who focuses on the Lord and who is casting his care upon the Lord, he can be relaxed in the midst of the most difficult and challenging of circumstances. And that's what we refer to as having a relaxed mental attitude, contentment, and peace that too is part of grace orientation it's been a while since i've talked through all the components of grace orientation but that's it in a in a nutshell now as jesus sets this up what we'll notice several times in here he uses a uh, a structure of an argument that was uh definitely rabbinical it was used in the old testament and it was also uh formalized under rules of uh, logic and from the greeks and the romans It's usually referred to by the Latin term an a a fortiori argument, and that is if God can do the greater thing, then uh, it logically is consistent that he can do the lesser thing. And so we see Jesus saying this um, many times. For example, at the end of verse 26, after presenting this argument, he, he will say, Are you not of more value than they? If God can take care of all of the animals and all of the birds and provides for them, then, of course, he would have the ability to take care of you. And since you are of more value than the birds of the air and the beasts of the field, then it is a logical conclusion that he will take care of you as well. He begins with almost a conclusion. This is often a way in which uh, scripture introduces an application derived from something previous. The previous verse, he made the point that you can't serve two masters. You're either going to serve one and, and love one and hate the other, or uh, hate, uh, love one, uh, hate one and, lo- and love the other, or, hate, or love the first and hate the other. We can't serve both God and mammon, mammon being uh, money and possessions. So he then says, after talking about being grace-oriented, being generous as opposed to stingy, now there's a difference between being stingy and being frugal. That may miss some of you, so you need to really listen to this. Stinginess is, is an orientation of the soul. Frugality is conservative money management so that you have the financial resources to accomplish that which has eternal value. Let me say that again. Stinginess is a matter of the soul. It doesn't just affect money. It affects your openness and graciousness to everybody in all situations whereas frugality is conservative money management so that you can have the resources necessary to fulfill the biblical obligations for uh, being generous to those in missions and in, in spiritual life, being generous to the poor, taking care and helping with the financial needs of others who are less for- fortunate. Frugality enables us to be gracious and generous and other areas of life. When our primary pursuit is the possession of thing, of money and the things that money can buy, then it will always run into a confrontation with the priority of serving and worshiping God. We live in a world today where there has been a shift, especially in the south. The north made this shift a long time ago. Some areas in the north still have blue laws that, that have hung over from the past. But I remember up until the early 90s, uh, you couldn't go uh, shopping on a Sunday afternoon. There were no stores open. It was against the law. Now, that had a background in the fact that most people were Christian most business owners were Christian. Business owners wanted to feel free to go to church and not have an obligation to focus on their business on that day. You had uh, They also recognized that their employees needed to be able to feel free to be involved in local church and local church activities and not be obligated to work on Sunday. And so uh, because of our Judeo-Christian heritage, Sunday was not a workday. Businesses were not open. There were a few service businesses, restaurants, and others that were open. But for the most part, businesses were not open on Sunday. As our culture became more focused on the accumulation of wealth and commercialism, and became more and more materialistic. The pressure came to, to be more competitive, have more days of the week to work. And so you saw a change in these laws in the late 80s and early 90s where businesses were open on Sunday, Sunday afternoon. And so there was more pressure there. It used to be that, that you would have this, uh, a complete day off on Thanksgiving. Now you have more and more stores that are starting to open on Thanksgiving. It's the competitiveness, and it takes it shows that on the part of businesses and employers, there is less and less of a value placed on the family, that people need to have these times to be with their families. They're important times. It builds the structure of the family. But when money is more important than the divine institutions then you're on the road to collapse in your country. That's just one example of how this country is imploding. We no longer value the basic divine institutions of individual human volitional responsibility, marriage, family, uh, government, and uh, national distinctions. So what we're brought back to here is that we have to keep our priorities in order and not get distracted. So, uh, it starts off with a conclusion emphasizing an application and the application is stated that we are not to worry about our life that's that's the point don't worry it is it is a uh, present imperative with a negative which means stop doing something you're already already doing the second paragraph gives more of an illustration we get two illustrations the the birds of the air in verse 26 and then there's sort of a concluding question what which of you can add uh... one cubit to a stature by worrying then we have a further development of an illustration in verse 28 uh... look at the lilies of the field how they grow they neither toil nor spin and yet uh... jesus says i say to you that solomon and even all of his glory with all of his massive wealth could not decorate his body as well as God decorates the um birds of the I mean the uh, flowers of the field okay all right something happened and I lost my powerpoint let's see here we go then we come to verse 28, and he draws draws his conclusion. Uh, we, we just talked about that, the lilies of the field. Then he concludes, if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is temporary today, it's there, tomorrow it's gone, how much more, there's that a fortiori argument again, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, here's the conclusion, restating the the prohibition, do not worry, saying, which would of course include thinking, what shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For after all these things the Gentiles seek. Here we get to the main lesson in verses 32 and 33. After all these things the Gentiles seek. This is, this is indicative of paganism. Materialism, worry, obsessed, being obsessed about your, taking care of your physical needs. But in contrast, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and under the, uh, control of God and recognizing His authority in your life. This should not shape your life. In contrast, you are seeking that which will have eternal value and in, in the kingdom of God. So our focus is different. Our perspective is different. And so He will, He then concludes in verse 34, therefore don't worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will Uh, worry about its own thing, sufficient for the day is a trouble thereof. The same principle is stated clearly in Philippians 4, 6, and 7, which I frequently quote. Be anxious for nothing, same principle, same word that we have in the Greek, merimnao, which means to be anxious for something, to be overly concerned about something, or to worry about it. Now, we all know that there's a good sense to worry When you're a parent and your children are out, there is a certain uh, positive uh, factor in worry. You want to make sure they're safe and secure. You're looking out for them, uh, and that's positive. But you also have to balance that with the fact that that child, according to Scripture, is a gift from God. You have a responsibility to do all you can do to a certain point, but ultimately the uh preservation, the health, the safety, the security of that child is in the hands of the Lord. And so we have to put them in the care of the Lord, and then we can relax. We maintain... Uh, uh, maintain the first divine institution of volitional responsibility and do all that we can, but then we put them into the hands of the Lord. The same thing is true with our possessions, whatever it is that we have, our homes, our financial resources, our Uh, 401K plans, whatever it is that we have, these ultimately should be owned by God. We should recognize that God is the one who is the ultimate owner, and he has simply uh, given us the delegated responsibility to be good managers or stewards of those uh, resources. So we are to be anxious for nothing. We should not be waking up in the middle of the night so overly concerned that we can't sleep at night. Now, I know that there are times when we're involved in projects, we're involved in different things that so consume our concentration that after we go to sleep at night, we wake up and we are already thinking about whatever's coming up the next day. But that's what this this passage is getting at. Let tomorrow take care of tomorrow so that you can relax and sleep tonight because you and I both know that we're no good the next day if we haven't slept well the night before. We can't perform as well. We need to learn to put these issues into the Lord's hands and just know that he will take care of things, trust him, and go to sleep. So we're to be anxious for nothing. Notice... There's no asterisk there that says, except for such and such in your life. There's no exception. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything. So you wake up in the morning, and you're consumed with concern, focus on some, some, maybe it's a test, maybe it's a paper you're writing. Maybe it's some meeting at work. Maybe it's something else that's challenging. Maybe it's uh, uh, whatever it could be related to your life, and you start thinking about it. What you need to do is develop the mental discipline and concentration to shift gears, put it in the Lord's hands, think through various promises, and focus on that. And that takes time. It's a simple procedure. But we all know sometimes, and in some situations, it's something we just do over and over and over again. We have to have memory verses stored in our souls that we can just rehearse through the night. You should have 15, 20, or 30 verses related to these kinds of situations that as you lie there in bed, you can just go through these verses in your mind, and then you will go back to sleep. This happened to me last night as a matter of fact. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication this is the application the one way in which we apply the faith rest drill with thanksgiving. So in that prayer you you express your thankfulness to the Lord help him to ask him to help you focus on why you should be grateful for this situation and this circumstance how you can use it in, your, in order to enhance and strengthen your own spiritual life and dependence upon him, and then you talk with him about those the situation and the problems, and then we have a promise of a result in verse seven, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding the word there is comprehension we it's incomprehensible it's not something we can rationally define. Although it is rational, God will give us contentment. It's part of how we have this uh, in part of our spiritual life. The Holy Spirit gives us comfort and contentment. And so we have this peace that surpasses all comprehension and it guards, protects, fortifies our hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So this is a very much a part of the mechanic of how we Avoid worry when worry begins to capture our thinking. What happens in worry is we put our money, I mean our focus on money and finances or other details of life as the source of real security and then we start worrying about it. We start working it over in our mind, afraid that we might lose it. How can we keep it? What's threatening it? Things of that nature. When we do this with any detail of life, and that could include money, your job, your career, uh, your attempt to gain recognition or affirmation at work. It may, the details of life that are important to some people are friendship or social life, romance, family, security, the th- things and the things that money can buy, status symbols. These are just some of the details of life that we put our hope in for security and stability. And when we start focusing upon them instead of the Lord, then this is really a symptom of spiritual idolatry. Worry is a symptom of spiritual idolatry. As we see in this passage, there's a contrast between the way the pagans operate who seek for the details of life. And the word there, as we'll see, isn't that they just desire it. It's they pursue it. They are running after it. They are chasing after it because they see in those details of life the source of happiness and stability and meaning. And it's always, it always disappears. It's not going to produce that. So they want more, and they want more, and they want more. But as believers, we know the only source of happiness and stability is going to be uh, in the Lord and in his priorities, that we need to recognize that our standards are to seek after those things which have eternal value in the future kingdom of God. This is why worry is a sin, Worry is also a sin because it's a manifestation of our desire to control what only God can control. We think we can take care of it when only God can take care of it. Worry indicates that we do not trust in the providential plan of God and that we are not claiming the, providen- the promises of God. So worry is a sign that we we lack trust in God and that we are unfaithful to God as the one who who says he will control the details of our life. So worry is important to understand. It's the opposite in Scripture of contentment. Now in 1 Timothy 6, 6 and following, Paul deals with this same topic in relation to worry, contentment, and finances. In 1 Timothy 6.6, Paul writes, now godliness with contentment is great gain. The word there for godliness is the word on the left, eusebeia, which has to do with the spiritual life. It's often translated godliness. That's an old English word that probably means nothing to 99.9% of the people who read it. We just look at it and think, oh, that means something godly. We don't really know what godly means. In English, the ly ending means to be like something. It's a comparative suffix. So godliness is godlikeness, to be like God. We understand, this is a good word or was in in, in, the, in Middle English and, and Old English, but we lose it since today. This, in the spiritual life, we're to be conformed to the image of Christ. We are to be like Christ. That means to be like God. So in essence, what the word godliness is describing is our spiritual life. Sometimes the word is translated as piety. There's another old word that doesn't really mean much uh, to people today. You, we can substitute the word spiritual life, and it will mean something. He says, now the spiritual life... With contentment is great gain. The word there for contentment is autarkeia which means contentment or satisfaction. Someone who is relaxed. They are not consumed with worry and anxiety. They're not uptight over the circumstances of their life. They have put those in the hands of God. They have cast their care upon God, and so they can be, be relaxed. We have a couple of important passages about godliness in First Timothy. First Timothy four eight says bodily exercise profits a little. Doesn't say it's of no profit. Just for those of you who want a rationalization to not work out tomorrow, okay. it Doesn't say bodily exercise is of no profit. It's a comparative uh, analogy here. It's a little profit. It does. It has value. It is important, but. Godliness, your spiritual life, is profitable for all things. It's much more profitable. Having promise of the life that now is, if you work out, you'll have a better life now. But your spiritual life, when you work out your spiritual life, it has value not only for today but also for eternity. So your spiritual life is profitable for all things, but as we saw in 1 Timothy 6.6, 6, it needs to have contentment. Now, a little warning comes in one of the verses I like to remember in 2 Timothy 3.12, because most people here would say, well, yes, I really want to have a good spiritual life. Well, God warns us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. How many volunteers do I have now? All right. See, if we're going to Pursue spiritual maturity in the devil's world. It's going to come at a cost. There's going to be a challenge, but we have to rest in God that he can take care of the situation. First Timothy six, seven goes on to say, for we brought nothing into this world and it is certain we can carry nothing out and having food and clothing with these we shall be content. Same word, we shall be sufficient. God provides for us. It's nice to have all the other details. It adds to our comfort. It adds to our enjoyment. God certainly isn't against that. God is not necessarily a minimalist God, but God is not the God of the health and wealth prosperity gospel either. There's nothing wrong with enjoying the luxuries and the and the many uh, additional elements that we have in in the life that we live there's nothing wrong that we should never feel guilty about having possessions having comforts having the things that we can enjoy in our in our culture but that's not what life life consists life consists in our relationship to God and pursuing his priorities in our life Paul warns in verse 9, those who desire to be rich fall into temptation and a snare and into many foolish and harmful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. So, so there's also a, a, a danger in the test of prosperity, but you can fall into just as many temptations and failures in the tests of adversity. Don't take these, these verses as absolute. There are Tests in the spiritual life in every area, but if we're pursuing wealth, it has its own areas of, of particular testing. I have a friend who one time uh, owned a uh, large business in another state; it was well known throughout the state, and for many years he was just basically living from paycheck to paycheck and extended debt and everything else as he was building his business. When he became quite successful uh one day he told me he said i would many ways spiritually i'd rather go back to when i was living paycheck to paycheck cuz i was forced to depend upon the lord every day but once i've reached this level of prosperity it's so easy to forget that god is the one who sustains me every day it's a much more difficult test to be prosperous and successful than it is to be in difficult times paul goes on to say In verse 10, for the love of money, notice many people misquote this, it's not money that's the root of all kinds of evil, it's the love of money that's the root of all kinds of evil. The scriptures do not teach that money and wealth is evil. It's that when we get it, it distorts our perspective and we get our focus off the Lord, that's when it becomes a danger. And that's when it leads those to stray from their faith in their greediness, Paul says in Colossians 3 that greed is idolatry. So many, because of their pursuit of money, stray from the faith in their greediness and pierce themselves through with many sorrows. We need to develop the attitude that Job had. In Job chapter 1, Job loses, loses his children, loses many of his possessions, And Job's response is in Job 121, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return there. The Lord gave, that is, the Lord gives the details of life, and the Lord has taken away. And these are details that he is very, very much emotionally attached to, his children, that which he has earned and worked for to accumulate over his life. But he says, The Lord gave me all those things. The Lord has a right to take them away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. So, with that as background, we see that what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 6, uh, 31 and following is that we are not to worry. It is not to be a characteristic of our soul. It's not to be part of our life. We are not to worry. Some of you, that's your strength. That's the area of strength in your sin nature. You just love to worry. Then there are others of you who really don't. That's not an area of weakness for you. You have other problems. But for those who have problems with worry, the only solution is the Word of God and the promises of the Word of God. But we all get there at different points in different tests. So Jesus says, don't worry about the details of life, what we eat, what we drink, what we wear. For after all these things the Gentiles seek, they are pursuing them. The Greek word there is epizeteo. Epizeteo, the epi is a prefix that intensifies the meaning of the word to seek after, to strive energetically for these things because the Gentiles see that in the possession of these things there is life. Now, Jesus has said and given these illustrations from creation that God is able to sustain and provide food for the birds of the air. And he says, they they neither sow nor nor reap, but they're not lazy. See, in, in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul says, if you don't work, you don't eat you know, this isn't a passage that says don't work, don't be energetic, don't do your part of, in terms of your volitional responsibility to, to work and to make a living. The birds work. You go outside, you watch the birds, they're constantly flying, looking for food, but they are not uh, they are not accumulating them to their destruction. Look at the birds, they neither sow nor reap nor gather into the bar- barns, yet your Heavenly Father feeds them. Ultimately, God is the one who feeds the birds even though they're looking for the food. Ultimately, God is the one who provides food for us even though we go out and we work every day. God provides the job. God provides the means and the result. He takes care of us. Verse 27, which of you by worrying can add one cubit to your stature? Worrying doesn't do anything except shorten your lifespan. More and more studies come out that people who worry have all sorts of other health problems. It's a manifestation of your failure to address uh, adversity in your life, and you're converting that to internal stress, which is causing all kinds of biochemical reactions in your body. It produces nasty little things like cortisol, which makes it more difficult for you to lose weight. And so when you don't respond by claiming the promises of of God, then you're just going to pack on more pounds. I just thought I'd add that for everybody. It makes it a little more practical. Get on the scale and see how well you've practiced the faith rest drill. There's got to be a principle there somewhere. So the Lord is very practical here, and he goes on to say, so why do you worry about these things? Rationally, we all understand that. It's not a matter of rationality. It's a matter of our volition. And it's a matter of the idolatry that's inherent in our sin nature. We think we can actually control it, and so by worrying about it, somehow we're going to do something, but we can't do anything about it. So Jesus says, why do you worry about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they will sustain themselves. Uh, God has provided for them, and if God will provide for the clothes of the grass of the field, verse 30, which is going to disappear tomorrow, uh, how much more, there's that a fortiori, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? So he again, in verse 31, says, do not worry. So here he says, don't be like the Gentiles, They pursue these things, for they see that in the possession of the details of life, there's life. But for us as believers, it's the possession of our relationship with God and the enjoyment of that, that there is life. And then in verse 33, our Lord says, But seek first, that's the contrast. Don't be like the Gentiles seeking life in the details of life. We are to seek first the kingdom of God. He didn't say only seek the kingdom of God. See, we tend to read these things in there. This is not a passage on asceticism. It's a passage on priorities. Seek first the kingdom of God. Now, the kingdom of God isn't here yet. It's in the future. It will come at the end of the tribulation. But there will be for us as church age believers, there will be a reward ceremony at the judgment seat of christ and those rewards are based on how we how successfully we live the christian life today and that impacts our roles and responsibilities in eternity it is how we glorify god and so when we seek first the kingdom of god then we do that which we can control we can control only our volition and only our own decisions to obey the lord we can't control any consequences we can't control the stock market. We can't control uh, what happens with our uh, 401K plans. We can't uh, control what happens with our jobs tomorrow. We can't control the economy. We can't control whether or not the weather's going to wipe out our, our homes or our possessions tomorrow. We can only control our response to the circumstances of life. We either apply doctrine or we don't apply doctrine. And if we're focused on applying doctrine, then God says he will take care of the things we can't control. He will sustain us. He will provide for us. And we have to learn to relax and put it into his hands and let him take care of it. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That is experiential righteousness, living in obedience to God's word. Walking by God, the Holy Spirit, when we sin, we confess sin, we're restored to fellowship and we continue our walk by the Holy Spirit and experiential righteousness is produced in our life when we obey the word. Seek first the kingdom of God, our priority, his righteousness, our obedience to him on a day-to-day walk with the Lord and what he promises to do is add these other things To us. He will sustain us and provide for us logistically. And then we have our conclusion, verse 34. Therefore, once again, the third time he says, do not worry about tomorrow. When you wake up at two o'clock in the morning, memorize this verse. You wake up at two o'clock, three o'clock, four o'clock in the morning. Just repeat, don't worry about tomorrow tomorrow will take care of itself right now I need to focus on what's going on right now which is rest so that I can be uh, prepared for tomorrow therefore do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about its own thing sufficient for the day is its own trouble don't add to your troubles today by worrying about what could be should be, might have been, could have been tomorrow it's a matter of mental attitude Discipline, focusing on the Word. You have to develop that. It's not something that just happens automatically as a believer. You have to focus. Every time you catch yourself worrying, you have to bring yourself back mentally. And the best way to do that is to memorize some of these scriptures that I have quoted today and rehearse those in your mind, rehearse it in prayer, and then move forward. And you may be doing this a hundred times every couple of hours in some situations and some days. That's how it works. And what happens gradually is the Word of God stabilizes our emotions in times of extreme adversity, and we learn then to relax and trust in God. It's a growth process. But we know that the God who is able to solve the greatest problem that we ever faced, which is sin, by sending his son to die on the cross for our sins and to pay that penalty, is able to solve and handle all these little problems that we have. They may loom large in some circumstances, but when we stop and think about it, there's nothing greater than the problem of sin. And if God could solve that in your life, then God can solve all these other little problems. He is omnipotent. That means he can handle, he is able to handle all of these circumstances. There's no problem. There's no difficulty. There's no emotional trauma. There's no situation that's too great for the grace of God, that's too great for the power of God, that is unknown by the omniscience of God. Because God knew it from eternity past, God is able to provide for it, and he has provided for it. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to... Reflect upon this important principle, for every one of us succumbs in the area of worry and anxiety, probably on almost a daily basis, for some more, for some maybe not quite so much, but we all succumb to this problem. We must learn to cast our care upon you because you care for us. No one loves us more than you. No one has given us more than you. No one sustains us better than you, for it is your plan and your purpose for our lives that you wish us to orient to on a day-to-day basis. And, Father, we pray that as we reflect upon this today and in the coming days, that we will be reminded of your grace, that you in your grace have given us everything we need to live a relaxed and enjoyable life, no matter what the circumstances may be. For we know our destiny that our destiny is with you and that you are using these tests today to focus us, to train us, and to mature us that the character of Christ might be evident within us. Now, Father, we pray if there's anyone here this morning that's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal destiny that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. He paid the penalty for your sins paid in full, so that all we need to do is to trust in him. At that instant that we believe Jesus died for my sins, at that instant we have eternal life. Now, Father, we pray that you would help us to remember these things, that God the Holy Spirit would impress them upon our souls, and we pray this in Christ's name, amen.